Good morning, everybody. Uh, I am Pastor Brian, if you do not know, and I want to say, Ronnie, thanks for kind of taking all my thunder today. You covered moms, you covered Psalm 139, that's what I'm preaching through, but, but no. But I do want to say again, before I get into it, that I, I want to start off by just giving my thanks to moms. That is the hardest job in the world, and I, and I know sometimes when I, my wife would go to a doctor's appointment and they would ask her, what's your job, what you do for a vocation? And she says that I'm a stay-at-home mom. And they kind of say, no, what's your, what's your real job? Like, do you have any clue how hard that job is? It's 24-7. It never ends. And moms are just so beneficial. Grandmothers are so beneficial. So, again, to all you mothers out there, I thank you so much uh, for just your influence on your children. And I do hope that today that the sons and daughters and fathers are doing something special for all of you. So. So with that, yeah, so this morning I'll be preaching on the presence of God be in Psalm 139, and for those of you that do not know, I will, I've been going through various attributes of God, in this case it will be the presence, or you can call it the omnipresence, um, but we will be reading the text a little bit later, so you can sit down, brother. I know, I know, sorry. It's okay, Albert, I know, I, I throw everybody off sometimes, I do that, so. All right. Imagine with me for a moment. You're an Israelite, and your city is under siege, and the clock is counting down to your demise. Where is the Lord? The Assyrian king has destroyed city after city, taking down their gods with them. Their gods have provided no help. The people were left to themselves as sitting ducks. But Scripture says God made a covenant with Israel and would protect them and defeat their enemies. Is he just like the gods of the nations who all seem to bow to the last minute? The Assyrians continue to press in on Jerusalem and the fear is intensifying. And as you wait, a royal Assyrian spokesman comes to Jerusalem to tell you you have no chance of survival. The God you rely on will not save you, he says. Don't let your king Hezekiah deceive you. Don't listen to the charge that the Lord will save you. And then he lays out a surrender agreement for you all to to take. Then following this surrender agreement, the spokesman says, Has any of the gods of the nations ever rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim, Hena, and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of the lands have rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? After hearing this and listening to their king Hezekiah, you remain silent. But we'll come back to this later in my sermon. See, Scripture says God made a covenant with Israel and would protect them and defeat their enemies. Or will he just get tossed to the ground like the other gods and burned in a fire? But as we will see, this is not the outcome for Israel. God's presence is never far off, for he is always near. His presence is beyond what we can fathom, and that is what I want to preach about this morning, the presence of God, the presence of God. While we went through a historical section of Scripture to start, we will now spend time in Psalm 139. And the purpose here is to expound God's presence to his creation, specifically his presence to us, his covenant people. So we will start with 139, and then we're going to branch out further, seeing a broader picture of God's presence as it relates to the context of the scriptures themselves, 
And so we will be examining, examining what divine presence actually is. So my main purpose this morning from this, from this sermon, my aim is for you to see the immensity of God, his presence in our lives of redeeming us, moving us to glory, perfecting us as creatures as his covenant people. So please stand with me if you can. We'll be reading from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 16. Again, Psalm 139, 1 through 16. <clears throat> David, the psalmist, writes, and I'll be reading from the CSB version. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day, darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. You may be seated and let us pray. <clears throat> Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, for his glory fills the entire earth. The glory of the Lord surpasses all understanding. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed your glory to us in the face of Christ Jesus. Lord. We thank you for this time to come together to hear your word, to hear about the presence of our mighty God, the presence of our living God, who is always before us wherever we are at, Lord. We know you are here now, Lord. Continue to be with us today as we go through your word, Lord. And I pray that your people come together as one, feeling, knowing, understanding the presence of our mighty God, who is mighty and powerful to save, Lord. And Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that do not know you, that they know your presence is here. Their pre your presence is here, Lord, and you call them to salvation, Lord. So Father, we thank you again for this morning. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So David opens this psalm in a very personal and candid manner. He says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Laying his heart open before the Lord, he doesn't presume that God is ignorant about him. Now to those who are married, I'm sure you are quite attuned to what your spouse is thinking, even if they don't know it. But to God, every secret thought, every hidden action are clearly seen. And then David lays out for us the range of which God knows us. In verses 2 and 3, he writes, You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Now, David's purpose is instructive for us, and in that speaking of the Lord, knowing all these aspects of our creaturely lives, the day-to-day -day things 
that we just take for granted shows us the details of God's knowledge of every single creature. When we stand, when we sit, when we sleep, when we think and ruminate our thoughts, all this the Lord knows completely. He doesn't rest or slumber, Scripture says. So there is no time when his eyes are not watching us, our innermost recesses of our being. He sees all things. It just goes to show us that his awareness of things never turns away due to him being distracted or required to attend more important things. How often have you heard somebody say, oh, God has more important things to deal with than to me? That is not the case. Listen to Deuteronomy 10.14. He says, The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. As the Lord of heaven and earth, nothing escapes his eye. So whatever David does, the Lord knows completely. In verse 4, David says, Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. Now the knowledge of God becomes more than knowing when things happen in the moment. Rather, he knows before the event transpires. Or in this case, before the words of David's tongue comes forth, God knows that. He already knows what David's going to do before his brain even fires a synapse. God knows the innermost recesses of our spirit. And God's knowledge of David in this manner reveals that God, what God knows isn't limited or constrained to time either. So what David will say God knows in his own mind before they ever come to David's lips. And that goes for all of us. He knows everything in your mind before it even comes forth. And then David, for some, takes it to a maybe uncomfortable level, saying in verse 5 to God, You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. While we see David speak of what God knows about him, here David moves into God's direct presence and involvement in David's movements and his actions. What does it say about God's relation to David? Well, basically, he is directly under God's power. John Calvin writes, It is much better to understand it as asserting that God, by his hand, laid as, laid as it were upon men, holds them strictly under his inspection so that they cannot move a hair's breadth without his knowledge. Now, for some of you, this might remind you of that teacher always standing behind you at school, watching to make sure you're doing your, doing your work and you can feel his hot breath on your neck. <laughs> but that's not God. That's not God. See, but for David, though it's terrifying for some, for David, this sounds unfathomable to understand, and rightly so. And hear what he says in verse 6. He says, This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Again, for some, this might bring about terror. But for David, he says this is wondrous. Knowing that his words and his actions are all under the mighty hand of God is wondrous. Do you feel the same? You should. I hope you do. But I am sure the wicked would hear this and they would shudder, seeking a way to escape. But church, God's knowledge is neither bound nor unmeasured. Yahweh's eternal Omniscient essence confronts us in that there is no escape because God is inescapably everywhere. Hear David's words starting in verse 7. He says, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the east horizon or settle at the western limits, 
Even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day, darkness and light are alike to you. Notice David doesn't say, where can I escape from your sight? Where can I go where you won't see me, God? Now, he is right not to say that in a literal sense because God doesn't have eyeballs. Rather, his spirit, his spirit is fully present to all of creation. No matter where David nor anyone else goes, to heaven, to Sheol, the east and the west, God is there. And, and he isn't just there, David says. He says, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. See, church, God isn't just a God with an incomprehensible, vast essence watching everything. Rather, there is no recess of heaven and earth which he is absent from, or any creatures beyond the reach of his power. And in verses 11 and 12, we have an interesting turn of phrase. David seems to be saying that even if the light were to become darkness around him, Darkness is not night for God, for the darkness would cause, like, would cause light, like day, for they are all alike to him. So what does that mean? In lightness, in darkness, God still sees all things. James Hamilton, commenting on this section, writes, Yahweh cannot be limited by temporal experience, by constraints on his knowledge, by the boundaries of a location, and he needs no light to see and know and be present. He is eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, and needs no created thing, not even something so essential as light, end quote. Now David moves further into reflecting on the glories and wonders of human creation, truly something beyond David's ability to understand scientifically speaking. We are, have the blessing of being able to see inside the womb. David obviously cannot at this time. But what is important to observe is that these reflections on God are very personal. As he speaks of the Creator's personal handiwork of forming him in the womb, let's read what David says in verses 13 to 16. He says, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. David speaks of being fashioned by God in a manner that is beyond comprehension. Truly, truly a mystery. So all David can do is praise him for God's remarkable work and that he knows man is God's pinnacle of his creative design. He knows all the works of God, but the glory and wonder of man in the dark environment of his mother's womb, in secret, are truly, for the Lord's eyes, belonging only to him. I remember us as parents when our daughter Ellie was in Mindy's womb. We would talk to her and put our hands on her stomach, on Mindy's stomach, feeling for her to move and kick around. We wanted to know as soon as possible, as soon as we could, who this amazing baby was. But yet only God, in his mysterious ways, knew exactly who she was from the thought, from his thought, 
to all the days of her life. For us, we had to wait for day one. Day one. But God knew all of it. In verse 15, David is not assuming that people are formed in the depths of the, of the earth, but rather to speak of the unseen reality of what, where humans are made. God is the designer and the fashioner of all life, and even though we can observe in our time how human life is conceived, we still don't know how is it that life comes into existence. We have no clue how that happens. We can observe, but we have no clue how that actually happens. But this is not hidden from God. It belongs to him alone. In verse 16, David speaks of God seeing not just him when he was formless, but all the days of his life are in God's book of life. Just as we saw earlier that before a word is on David's tongue, the Lord knows it. So too, every day of David's life and your life is written and planned before one of them begins. While we see that God formed David's members, his formless substance was known and recorded, directing us back again to admiration of God's providence over his life and over our lives. See, church, God's presence in David's life and in our life is more than just God walking alongside him, telling him to watch out for that trap and look out for that snare over there. We see that his presence is power. His presence is power. Now, I've already preached on divine power, but there is a close link between the two, which we should expect because one attribute cannot be separated from the other when we are talking about God. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, church, in this next section of this sermon, I want to branch out a little further, looking at divine presence, theologically speaking, what that means from a broader picture. We have spent time in the immediate portions of Scripture, but we need to see the wider implications of what we learned as it pertains to the canon, the entire Bible, all of Scripture, and redemptive history. Now, I won't be going through every passage in the, in the scriptures, but we're going to see kind of a bigger view of it. And then much of the material to follow was adapted from one of my, my favorite theologians, the late John Webster. So after what we looked at and learned about in Psalm 139, there are some great implications about God's at, uh, presence to his creation. The historic tradition following St. Augustine has understood that God's presence is twofold, twofold, as it pertains to his immediate relations between he and his people, where he dwells in the hearts of his covenant community, this kind of presence is termed the inner sphere, or received and dwelling in the believer. And there should be a slide for you, yes. And his presence to everything he has made as the giver, sustainer, and determiner of life is the outer sphere of God's presence, or his objective presence. He is there objectively speaking. That is his outer presence. Now, summarizing Thomas Aquinas, who some years later came, he writes, God as spirit, thinking of Psalm 139, God as spirit is in all things by his essence, power, and presence, whereby he causes things to exist and continues their existing by his power as they continue living and sharing in his goodness. God not only exists in the creature, but he also dwells within them as in his own temple. Now we know that as believers that God dwells in us for we are his temple and that's what Aquinas is talking about here. There are two spheres of presence that we need to see. One is God's outer sphere of presence, <clears throat> excuse me, whereby we would see his moving creation and its intended purpose for the goal he has for it. 
And then the inner sphere, his covenant fellowship, his covenant intimate fellowship with creatures, those he's created and elected for glory, as we see in David, the prophets, Israel, the apostles, and the new covenant believers. In this inner sphere, God is determined to glorify himself by glorifying creatures. As the creator of heaven and earth, he loves his creation and is determined to sustain it by his almighty presence to it. Our relations with God are because of him. See, church, God has no need. He has no lack in himself where he needs fellowship or communion with anything outside of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But he's chosen to bring another reality into existence by what we would call creatio ex nihilo, from nothing. A mysterious thing indeed, from nothing, he brought all of us into existence. According to God's decree, he determined to coexist with another reality besides himself. These creatures, you and I, God determines to be with them by his direct presence, sharing his goodness with us, with them, and providentially guiding them to fulfill his purposes. Now, all of this inner working decree language I've been talking about, we come to know this through the Christian works, I'm sorry, we've come to know this through the works of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Christian tradition says that the Father is the source of these works, the Son is their means, and the Spirit brings them to completion. We believe in a triune God who acts as one, but is nevertheless triune. We get this formula from the Apostle Paul in his extolling of the mysterious working of the Lord in Romans 11.36 and in 1 Corinthians 8.6. He says here, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Do we see that? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8.6, Paul writes, Yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. We can see this also supported in Hebrews 2.10 and Colossians 1.16, where he says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, right, that is his purpose, to bring sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And lastly, Colossians 1.16, speaking of Christ. Paul writes, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. What does that mean? All things, everything has been created from him, through him, to him, for him, and every other preposition you want to use. Now, while these works show specific persons being credited with a particular aspect of it, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they all work undividedly. Again, we are speaking about the one God who is everywhere present, working in creation. There is nowhere nor no thing he is not fully present to and in, acting for his glory. And when I say in, God is not the pulpit here, right? But God knows every single little fiber about this pulpit. He knows every single fiber about every single thing around in this created universe. Now we can move on to omnipresence, which is a term you may be more familiar with. <clears throat> As noted earlier about God's presence, we will also speak of his omnipresence in two ways. 
One is his imminent attribute, also designated immensity, and that's a key term I wanted you guys to understand this morning, immensity. And that pertains to God's boundless measure of his spirit as the source fully present, sustaining all things. And the operative attribute of God is an older term, much, much older, but hopefully you can remember it, and that is the term ubiquity, ubiquity, which pertains to God's presence everywhere, God's presence everywhere. But these both must be kept together, for God is one. It is just a way for us to talk about God's essence as he is in his perfection and in his relation to us creatures. For us, we say God is omnipresent because he is immense. In his work of providence, he is present and upholds all things according to his purpose. Now, one of the tendencies that we do have as creatures is that we, we collapse God's omnipresence into a presence that factors a feeling that God is present. Now, what does that mean? We think about God's presence about how we feel it. Do I feel God here? If I don't feel God here, then I think God is present. But is, not, is not present, but that is not the case. We cannot do that. Because here's the thing. If God removed his presence from anywhere, what would happen? It would cease to exist, right? It would cease to exist. Everything would pass away. But when we look around the world around us, we see the sun, the seasons going through, the stars, the planets. We see people, life, beauty, laughter, all kinds of things. We see sadness and death. What we are seeing is God's omnipresent self moving his creation towards the fulfillment of his covenant aims, that of loving and saving fellowship with creatures, his elect. Now we're going to look a little closer at immensity. Now ubiquity we will get to a little bit later. But these modes of God's presence are inextricably linked together, comprising his omnipresence. God is the free, transcendent Lord of all things, measureless, everywhere present in power and mercy. So, immensity. Let's look into this a little closer. As the triune God himself, he is sovereignly free for his creative saving purposes, whereby nothing hinders his goals and aims. And falling from this term, we would say that God is infinite. We know that term. God is infinite. Infinite. We can't even put a measure on that. We just say he is infinite, right? And this is how we understand his presence as being infinite. In order for God to be as scripture claims, he must be without location. He cannot be fixed to one spot. If God is to be able to be in China right now and here at the same time, he can't just bounce back and forth. It doesn't work that way. He cannot have a location, right? Nothing can hinder him to fulfill his purposes. Nothing can finite him, as I say. Rather, he must be infinite. And we cannot think of the term as opposite of finite. Rather, he is unconditioned by space, time, or anything of the creative order. He is transcendent, we would say, of all space with no creaturely property that can magnify our description of it. And what does that mean? We don't have the words to describe God as he is. We can make comparisons. We can see what things must like, what they might, what they might be like. But ultimately, at the, same, at the same time, God is qualitatively different from us as creatures. And when you read, read scripture, he has to be. He has to be. He cannot be like you or I and do the things that the Bible says he does do and will do. So we can only grasp what it is by the ways and works of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. John Webster writes, In his triune act, God's immensity makes itself operative and known as his omnipresence in the providential ordering of creation. End quote. Church, the effortless and gratuitous works of God give us a glimpse of his qualitative difference 
from created reality. When we're thinking of immensity, we need to think of nearness, of nearness. Not just that he is close to us like I was talking about, we feel his presence. Rather, his capacity for nearness is unhindered and intense. Right now, the God of this universe, as vast as you can even try to think of him, is fully here present before all of us. That's that's mind-boggling. And at the same time, he's at the farthest ends of space that we can't even get. He is fully there present. That is absolutely mind-boggling. But when you read scripture, he has to be. He can be no other way. He can't just bounce around back and forth. He cannot be. So his immensity is is God's nearness. Again, not just his closeness. It's the capacity that he is not hindered by anything to be here fully present or anywhere across the globe. Why so? He doesn't contain space. We contain space. I have a spatial location. I move from here. I move from there. God doesn't move like that. Listen to 1 Kings 1, 8, 27. He says, But will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. And that was one of the downfalls of this, what you would call, locative religion, where that God was only confined to a temple. It wasn't that way. It wasn't that way at all. Why is that? Nothing can contain God. He is limitless and without restriction in his presence to creation. And therefore, he is limitless to his whole creation in his ordering, his sustaining, and perfecting it as he directs human creatures to fellowship with himself. Going back to our triune formula, again, the late John Webster writes, God is immense as the Father who speaks the limitlessly effective word of the creative love, as the Son who is the Redeemer and head of the entire creation, and as the Spirit who is overall as the Lord and giver of life. So he's talking about our triune God, who though we see these things distinctly, apply to them, all yet is one divine act. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So then, what is God's omnipresence? How can we encapsulate God's omnipresence? And I will let Mr. Webster answer again. He said, God's omnipresence then is his entire and constant presence in and to all things. The ceaseless and sovereign lordship in which the Most High, who is without measure or limit, inclines to be present to his creation, and so holds it and renews it in life. Think about how he started. God's presence is way beyond what we can think of. But he concludes with what? That he decides to what? To incline himself to be present with us. To be present with us, and he does not need to be. That is unfathomable. Why is that? As the owner of heaven and earth, In all that is in them, as the exalted one, he is uncontainable. He is uncontainable. Church, in the opening of the sermon, I left you with the Israelites in fear and silence. The Assyrians have surrounded them, and the royal spokesman was using rhetorical tactics to further instill fear, bragging about the national gods that the Assyrians destroyed. While God is the Lord of the universe, he has specifically chosen to meet creatures in their dimension, in their time, in their place, in their social environment. The presence of God moves in, and the unbounded becomes bounded to creatures. First, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the triune God, he acts by taking on flesh. The unbounded God takes on flesh, 
united himself to creatures forever. And in that divine act of miraculous proportions, the unrestricted, free, and unhindered God of the world makes a special presence located in the hearts of the elect. He moves from everywhere you can imagine to your heart, to my heart, to your heart. It is a special history that plays out against the backdrop of the outer sphere of his presence to the rest of the world. The history of election is that God calls creatures to fellowship from all various walks of life under their lordship. Church, look around you. There's probably nobody here you would know are not apart from this church. You didn't meet him somewhere on the street. Maybe you have some family members, but you are here because God has called you from every tribe, tongue, nation. He's brought you into this fellowship to dwell with you and to dwell with those in China. And those that are in space right now, hovering around the earth, that's what he does. Why is that? They are brought into communion via a summons. He calls them. He calls them to covenant relationships. And in that covenant sphere, the triune God, through sheer gratuitous mercy, makes a people for himself. In the garden, in the very beginning of time, what happened? Adam broke fellowship with God and he tried to hide from the presence of God. The first thing he tried to do is hide from the presence of God. But what do we learn in Psalm 139? There's nowhere to go. There is nowhere to go. But what did God do? To restore the breach, he enacted a special history. One where to quote John Webster again, where God chooses that he will be for us and so that he will be with us, and so that he will be with him. And that all this should take form as a temporal actment. When I mean temporal, I mean here, now, time and space. God, who's not bounded by time and space now, becomes part of time and space. What does this mean for God? This means that God determines himself for fellowship with creatures. He makes a decision to be in fellowship with creatures, and that's what he does. And once he makes that decision, there is no turning back. He does not need this, though, church. His perfect life is communion of Father, Son, and Spirit, and there's no lack in that. But God loves the creature and so blesses it. And the blessing, quite simply, is His presence, His life with the creature. Where is your treasure at? Is your treasure to be in the presence of God? That's what David says he is. He wants to gaze upon the presence of the glory of the Lord And God's presence to us should be the most important thing to us. Not treasures of material goods, but the presence of God is what we should be seeking. And that is what he's given to us as a sheer gift. As we close, let's go back to our history, to our story in 2 Kings 18. Chapter 18 ends with Israel in silence. And Hezekiah is distraught. His clothes are torn. And he walks to the Lord's temple. But God is ubiquitous. Do you remember that term? God is ubiquitous. Remember that word. You will not see it on a Christian coffee cup. God is ubiquitous. He is fully present to all things in all situations. For Hezekiah, his enemies are pressing in and he sees that his life is coming to an end. For God, bringing in the Assyrians as well as the Babylonians, the Medes, the Greeks, the Persians, and all the many world powers he raises up to move across the globe for his purposes, 
as all under his ubiquitous presence. But Hezekiah needs to see God fulfill his covenant promise to his people. And in 2 Kings 19, the following chapter, Hezekiah in distress, he seeks the prophet Isaiah's counsel. Church, things are dire. It says children come to the point of birth, but there is no strength to deliver them. That's how bad things are. So Isaiah says to Hezekiah, offer a prayer to the Lord for the surviving remnant. That's how bad it is. Isaiah hears from the Lord first. He tells Hezekiah, the servants, he t- sorry, telling Hezekiah's servants to not be afraid. For the Lord hears the blasphemous words of the Assyrians, but is about to put a spirit in the king of Assyria so that it will lead him off to a rumor and make him return to his own land where he will fall by his own sword. Now, do you remember the royal spokesman, the prideful royal spokesman? And he hears about this, but he gave one of those mark my word speeches. What does he say? He says, don't let your God deceive you. We destroyed all other nations' gods. Hezekiah gets the correspondence and he goes to the temple to pray for what he is terrified. But let's hear his prayer in 2 Kings 19. He says, Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made by human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Excuse me. Now, Lord our God, please save us from his power, so that all the kingdoms of the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord our God, you alone. Church, what have we learned about God? About his presence. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. And he hears Hezekiah's prayer. And just like that, he strikes down 185 Assyrian soldiers. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. He was present to every single one of them and struck every single one of them down. The king of Assyria returns in disgrace. The Lord isn't a national deity, as Hezekiah learned, bound to a temple, bound to a piece of wood made by the followers of that God. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe, fully present to every inch of his creation. Scripture says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show him strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. And Hezekiah was devoted to him. Isaiah 64.4, For ancient times no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. In this sermon this morning, we got to hear about the Lord's presence to the world and to us individually. There is nowhere we can go to escape his presence. And those who belong to him, that should be one of the most comforting things to know, that God is always near us. The Lord is always near, no matter where you're at. No matter if you're a missionary, you're an evangelist, you're in a world full of sin, God is always there no matter where you're at. But those of us who think we can hide our sins from him, and we can flee from him, and we can hide what we do, and he will not know 
boy, are you mistaken. But it should also comfort, it should be a comfort for those of us who know that we have loved ones that are struggling in sins, that are maybe in very, very bad sin right now. But nevertheless, they still belong to the Lord by his grace. And we can trust that God is working in them. His presence is with them, moving them, guiding them, correcting them, refining and making them righteous in Christ. You can trust that because that person belongs to the Lord and he is going to do those things. It should be comforting to us because we know that there won't be a single sheep the Lord will not bring to his fold. There won't be a single sheep that will go astray because his sin is so bad, which the Lord will not see or overlook or just forget about or won't be present to. That will not happen. As I said, the Lord has an inner sphere of people that he has chosen to covenant with. And he is still bringing more into that covenant. And there are those on the outside in that outer sphere right now who are rejecting this summons. They're rejecting that call to be part of the inner sphere of God. But again, you cannot hide. The Lord sees all, he knows all, and he will bring all your sins to bear. You will be accountable for all of your sins, and there will be judgment for all of your sins. On that day, there is nothing you can say or do that will justify you on the day of judgment. So I beg you, as I've said this morning, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. He summons you to covenant fellowship, but it takes the response of repentance and faith to enter. Don't remain on the outer sphere of God's presence. Repent and trust in Jesus and take part of the fellowship with the triune God and his people.